Hi there, listener, and welcome to this ski podcast special in which we discuss the uh, Winter Olympics 2022 uh, to be held in Beijing with my special guests, uh, Graham Bell and Emily Sarsfield. Now, this chat was recorded at the ski launch in September 2020. The sound quality isn't perfect, but I played a clip in episode 80, asked for a bit of feedback, and the feedback I got was that people would like to hear a little bit more of it. So here we go. I started off by asking Graham Bell what conditions he thought our athletes could expect in Beijing. Um, in terms of conditions, um, I've never skied in China. Um, I've been there for the World Triathlon Championships. I've been there for the World Fencing Championships, but I've never actually skied there. Um, having talked to a, a few people who have been out there and, and have worked out there, it's, it's as bitterly cold as South Korea is and very, very windy. Um, I talked to Pat Sharples recently about the, uh, the freestyle events that are going to be taking place out there and a similar situation in the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the garden, the, uh, the secret garden, that's it, the secret garden, the windy secret garden. Uh, wind is going to be a big issue um, again um, for uh, the freestyle. And it was a massive issue for the, for the I think you remember the women's uh, snowboard sludge style that were getting completely blown off. Um, and, and then and in Pyeongchang, for, for a slalom to be delayed, um, that was quite incredible. Um, I, was going, I was actually going to go up on course inspection to have a look at the women's slalom, and uh, one of the Finnish guys, Kali Palander, who's the next world champion, just come, just come down. He said, Graham, don't get on the chairlift. If it stops, you will die. And coming from a Finn, who are used to the cold, I was like, I'm not getting on the chair. <laughs> so the race got cancelled and moved back. Next, we covered what sort of COVID regulations athletes are likely to face at Beijing 2022. In terms of lockdown and COVID, um, I've heard that the Chinese are going to be even more draconian than the Japanese. Uh, well, there's a surprise. Um, and they're going to just lock everything down. Uh, they will create, as far as I've heard, um, these kind of exclusion zones around the Olympic Village. So, and they're talking about moving people out of hotels and just having those hotels. So, so for the International Broadcast Center, they'll have the International Broadcast Center, they'll have a few hotels that are around it, and then there'll be an exclusion zone all around that. So no locals will be able to get in unless they're working in the bubble, and if they're working in the bubble, they stay in the bubble, they can't leave. So it's very much like you're going to be completely locked down. Um, they'll probably have a similar thing that they did in Tokyo with the athletes that they have to leave 48 hours after completing their last event, um, and probably no crowds. Graham also told us a little bit about his experiences in Tokyo at the Summer Olympics in 2020. I was working for the Olympic Broadcast Service, so not the BBC, so I actually had slightly more freedom than the BBC because the BBC employed their own uh, COVID officer uh, who was apparently like, really draconian. Um, whereas the OBS rules were uh, you had to test three times, because we were coming from a Delta country, you had to do three PCR tests, one a day uh, before you then flew. Uh, when you got there, you couldn't leave your hotel room for three days unless you were going in a private vehicle to the uh, IBC. And then when you were in the IBC, you had to eat in a separate room 
with a pack lunch that they gave you. Um, so we were kind of like the, the, the unclean ones. The, the Australians were laughing at us, um, but we got to take taxis into the, for the first three days anyway, we went on the bus. Um, after 14 days, they gave us a travel pass to travel around Tokyo. Um, but most of the restaurants were shutting at eight and weren't serving alcohol. But it wasn't completely city-wide. If you found the right spots, and we did find the right spots, and the journalists, after all, we found the right spots to find the right restaurants that stayed open until two in the morning and served beer all night. So, you know, I, I was working on, uh, I was working in the urban park, so I was working on skateboarding, BMX, um, and BMX freestyle, um, as well as going back into the IDC to work on, on fencing. Um, and it was like, so basically my, my body temperature would go up, I would sweat, like sweat, sweat, I never, I've never worked in, in conditions as hot. We were taking ice packs, by like day two, we were taking ice packs and sticking them under the, uh, the strap of the microphone, of your earphones, and sticking them on our heads, and that ice cold water was just kind of running down us. And then you'd come from there, and I'd be working from like nine in the morning till like two in the afternoon, go to the IBC and commentate on fencing in an air-conditioned sound booth that was freezing cold. I then asked uh, Emily Sarsfield and, and then Graham what they thought the impact on the athlete experience will be with the changes in place for Beijing and what athletes might miss out on. Yeah, I mean, as an athlete, I think you ultimately always want to compete on that ultimate sporting stage and, and to me that was the dream, the Olympics was the dream. And, um, and part and parcel of the whole experience is the open, the closing ceremony and, and what have you. You sometimes get dictated to of when you can travel in and, and things like that, or when your event is. Obviously, traveling kind of as far afield as uh, Korea and, uh, and China and stuff, you kind of need time to prepare as an athlete as well. Potentially, these athletes might be getting shipped in at a very close period to their event. Hopefully not, but because of COVID, which then might affect them physically to be able to prepare. But yeah, like you said, the Olympic Games is the ultimate sports stage, and just being there with the best athletes in the world and competing with them, you know, being in that kind of the food hall and, and experiencing that, um, seeing these kind of living legends, kind of, and having your meal with them and just, uh, yeah, rubbing shoulders with them is, to me, a good part and parcel of being an Olympian, not only just representing your, your country, but seeing these kind of amazing sporting stars as well. I'm more and more keen on this. I went to five Olympics as an athlete. I didn't go to a single opening ceremony. I was there to compete. And the most important thing for me was the downhill course. Um, because, you know, the, the race piece, that is the most important thing for me for any Olympic Games. What is the downhill course like? Um, and was it any good? Because it's, it's, it's different because even in Spain, you, you got piece to piece of, you know, whereas in downhill, um, you know, some of the Olympic courses were nowhere near as, as up to scratch and as demanding as some of the courses we race on the World Cup. Uh, so for me, that was what the Olympic Games was about. It was like, what was the course like? Um, and yeah, I'm, and I'm not there to kind of make friends and have fun. <laughs> I then asked Emily and Graham to try and give us a bit of perspective on how you deal with adversity 
and the challenges you face as an athlete, particularly to see what learnings there might be for everyone else who's working in the travel industry, indeed anyone who's had to deal with COVID over the last few years, the kind of uh, difficulties it presents to you in your life. Yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge. I mean, being an athlete, you've always got ups and downs. I was maybe a little bit of an anomaly for a British athlete. Well, not so much for a British winter athlete, but had no funding, uh, was very much kind of didn't have a team, didn't have a coach, didn't have any of those things in place. So had to do things a little bit differently. Now, 20, 2009 came along, the ski cross was making its debut in 2010 in Canada. I was there on the Olympic test event 2009, second last jump in the finals, twist my knee basically. I snapped every single ligament in my knee, fractured my femur, my tibia, did my cartilage and meniscus. Um, shipped back to the UK, which I was in denial a little bit because I, I told the surgeon how I was carried to the Olympics the following year and did everything I possibly could to kind of get back to it. Now, injury is a very popular thing with an athlete. Um, we've, got, we've, we've all got a nibble. Anyone at ski cross. Um, if you're not a ski cross athlete, it's at least an ACL. Um, so basically kind of returning from injury, you we, we tell those athletes control the controllables. And that's the big thing. And it was something I could control. I had to learn how to walk again and do everything like that. And go talk about my physio I could go on the bike for two minutes. Like an athlete, I can go longer than that, but little did I know I couldn't at that time go on longer than two minutes because my knee was the size of my head. Um, so you can put stepping stones in place and always little goals. So you've got the big goal, my car at the Olympic Games, one year out, but I put all these little stepping stones in place, like walking again and, and, and getting on my ski for the first time. Didn't get to the games, unfortunately. Um, they took the the number two at the time, um, because obviously I was just back from injury. Now the next games I was fully fit and was there ready to go to 2014. Now this time I missed out on politics. Now that was something as an athlete, control the controllables I couldn't control. They were in control of it. And that was even harder for me as an athlete than anything I'd ever had to deal with before, because I couldn't put those stepping stones in place and I had no control of it. So it was really difficult, and, and Ian actually said, I know you were really angry at the time. I was, like, I was angry. I was, because I was, I was grieving, I literally just lost this dream, lost this big thing, which I had done everything in my life to achieve. So it took a while for me to overcome that, but I suddenly had this kind of like flick, and it was like a little bit of a reframe. I, I'd done my journey different to a lot of my peers, I didn't have a coach, I didn't have the funding, and I, you know, I could sit there and I could be negative about all these things. But I basically had to turn all of these things on their head and use them as positives because they were what made me stronger. There was those little moguls on my journey which I had to just work a new way around to achieve the goal, which then built me as an athlete and built me stronger and as yeah, it got me ultimately to the games in twenty eighteen. Injury is, injury is a funny uh, thing because a lot of the times when you get injured, it, it does refocus the mind and you can come back stronger. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see athletes tear an ACL and they'll be you know, fairly good athletes prior to that injury, but they'll come back and they'll have this incredible new drive and, and new determination and new motivation because they've just spent the entire you know, six months of their rehab process focusing, completely focusing on one goal, 
there's no distractions anymore. And they made the decision that they want to continue with the sport. So it does, it sharpens the mind and it refocuses that determination. And yeah, it is true that that does happen. Just following on from that question, I asked Emily if she could give us a little bit of background about the Ellie Souter Foundation. Yeah, so Ellie and I actually, uh, she was a snowboard cross athlete, a lot younger than me. However, uh, was a very good friend um, and we trained together a lot. Um, yeah, it's quite difficult. So Ellie took her own life um, and basically her father and her mum actually very, very passionate about they did a lot for Ellie, and she, she again, she was very low-funded and had a lot of stresses in life, but they just wanted to be able to support up-and-coming athletes who had the same kind of stresses and to try and release that from those athletes. So Maisie Potter and a lot of other kind of the, the younger up-and-coming guys um, in the Team GB team now are supported by this foundation, and Tony goes out there and all those little things like having a gym to train in. We don't get gyms for training, we have to pay for them. So he goes out and just like makes little connections with all these like little things like that and then supplies them with, I don't know, a psychologist who will be able to support them through all their different things they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Just finding ways to just help them on a day-to-day basis of all those things their peers probably don't have to deal with as Austrians and the Canadians and the US team because they're provided within this huge professional structure, but a lot of UK athletes are. So he's just trying to, he's got this foundation set up to, to raise awareness and um, also to help support those young athletes. The conversation then moved on to recruiting athletes from other countries to join uh, Team GB and who the prospects are for Beijing 2022. Well, it's something that we're actively going out and doing. It's something that, uh, that's uh, the British team have done in the past um, to try and get athletes who, who couldn't get into their, their, their own national teams. Um, we've had those kind of individuals before, but uh, Gus Kenworthy and Charlotte Banks aren't those guys. You know, they are, you know, they're you know, Olympians and world champions, and we've managed to persuade them uh, to change nationality and, uh, and compete for the UK. Um, you probably you know probably Charlotte better than I do, um, uh, but yeah, Gus Kenworthy, um, um, as well as competing slope style, he won. Uh, um, but yeah, he wants to do halfpipe as well, and you know that was why. And, and maybe he was kind of thinking he was getting towards the end of his you know his career. There's a lot of competition uh, on the US team, um, but I don't know. Do you know why Charlotte? The, the reasons why Charlotte uh, switched. Yeah, so this was something like actively happened and actually off the success of Jenny Jones. So basically Jenny went out and won a level plus in Sochi. And um, basically the way British funding works is we don't get money until we produce medals. So it's a bit chicken and egg. So you've got to go out there and get your medal first before they'll put money into the, into the pot. And uh, we've now been able to create a, a successful and also medals at the back of Pyeongchang with Billy and the guys. So, We've actually got very kind of a well-structured program now. It is very much so for those elites, so that's why the Ellie Suter Foundation kind of get, captures that bracket of people who aren't quite in that elite, elite level. There's a lot of people who now want to compete for us because Britain have got some amazing facilities in terms of sports science, psychology, like we lead the way. So, I mean, that's why we've got 
you know, fine clubs and rowers who are absolutely smashing it in Cork, we've got this amazing kind of facility. So these guys are being tempted in by that. So Charlotte now has this amazing program um, with everything she could wish for, with better kind of, she still lives in Bron, but her parents are British, can now utilize our facilities and stuff like that and, and those experts. You know, metal possibilities in both ski cross and in snowboard cross. Uh, we've got Dave riding on the Alpine side um, with, uh, with a young team coming through with Laurie Taylor and Billy Major um, also skiing style and being coached by, by Alan Baxter now. Um, so those three guys are looking strong. Um, on the Alpine women's side, Alex Tilly, um, Charlie Guest uh, are, are looking good as well. Uh, plus you've got the, uh, the, the, the Atkins sisters, Zoe, and Izzy, uh, Izzy won a medal in, in slow style in uh, Pyeongchang, uh, and Zoe's won a World Cup halfpipe already in her young career, so they're looking good as well. And yes, yeah, so I think on the seaside, looking very strong. We've also got uh, on the snowboard side, um, well, Katie Allrod, obviously, uh, I've forgotten uh, James Woods. So there's, there's a whole list of, of, of people. Mia Brooks as well coming through on the snowboard side, that's what I'm thinking of. So we've got youth. And we've got some really experienced, you know, medal potential um, for ski and snowboard, and, and the Nordic guys as well. We've got um, the two Andrews, Andrew Young and Andrew Musgrave. So right across the board on ski and snowboard, uh, it's probably looking as good as it's ever looked going into Olympic Games. We also have athletes coming from other sports. I asked Graham about John Allen Butterworth, who is joining the Paralympic snowboarding team. He appeared on the jump with Graham Bell and asked him if he saw anything of his abilities then. Yeah, he was certainly very, very focused. Uh, he had a short learning time um, on the jump. Um, and you know, you've got six weeks to learn to ski. And he's coming from a very low level um, but very, very focused. So I, you know, I wish him all the best. He's not the only one that's switching sports. Uh, uh, Greg Rutherford, the uh, long jumper, the gold medalist, part of those uh, London Olympic gold medal winning Super Saturday. Uh, he's switching to bobsleigh. Emily gave us some insights in some of the financial challenges that athletes face and how you might be able to get involved with sponsoring them. We're athletes. I did not do a marketing degree. I did a sports science degree, which helped me a lot in knowing what to do in training wise. Did not help me a lot in knowing how to go and find sponsors. Now I was quite proactive at the time. Um, there's other athletes who are very proactive now. Now if you are a company or a brand who wants to tap into an athlete, reach out to them because they just maybe don't know how to make that connection. So if you're kind of like, I, I would suggest as, as I now work for a brand, that's what I do. A lot of women now have utilised that, um, but yeah, they, they just don't know how to speak to a business, but then they know exactly what to do on TikTok, Instagram, social media, and connect to your audience you haven't got those immediate connections with. Finally, Graham talked about the youth side of things for alpine skiing and the number of schools that exist out in the Alps helping to train our younger British skiers right now. The youth side of things, certainly with alpine skiing, is actually looking pretty good as well. We have, uh, we've got a number of alpine-based schools, uh, the British Ski Academy being the one that was the original, but we've now got two over in Austria, Ambition Racing, Evolution. Uh, we've got Apex, which is based out in Teen, uh, and a number of young 
skiers racing um, under 16 is, 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 is as big as it ever was. Uh, so we have quite a large talent pool coming through. Uh, it is not cheap, though. It is, it's not cheap to fund it. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the, 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 the downside is that um, uh, it, it's becoming very expensive. Uh, but all of those, all of those um, academies somehow managed to get through uh, last season and still do coaching and still managed to find places where they could ski. I know that Malcolm went to Poland with the British Ski Academy because they had different rules over there and they were skiing in some really unusual places. And just to bring up the, the B word, Brexit, um, I think that Malcolm is going to, the British Ski Academy is going to base half the season in Valle d'Aosta and then because of his staff uh, and not having to spend the 90 days out of 180 days, they're going to move to Andorra for a large part of the season because Andorra is not part of the Schengen Agreement and you can ski in Andorra and not use up your 90 days out of your 180 day rolling. So I'd like to thank Graham and Emily for taking part and sharing all of their ideas about the Olympics with us. Hopefully you, listener, found it uh, interesting. I appreciate the audio on this particular podcast was not perfect, but listen to some of our regular uh, episodes. There's plenty of them out there, over 100. Catch up with those and uh, you'll soon find that this is the exception rather than rule. I only put this one on because people did say they'd be interested in hearing it. Otherwise, thank you very much for sharing this time with us, listener. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode of The Ski Podcast. (laughs) 